these injustices, these cheats, and that's effectively what corruption is, it's cheating. They can't be allowed to get away with this. It's just not right. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. In today's episode, we are thrilled to welcome Dan Hoff. Dan is a professor of political science at the University of Sussex and the founding director of the Sussex Center for the Study of Corruption. The interview covers integrity in sports and what we can learn from it for fighting corruption. So before we dive into this episode, we would like to ask for your support. The Anti-Corruption and Governance Center of the Center for International Private Enterprise, or short SIP, is handing out an award for the best anti-corruption podcast. And we are nominated. So if you like the work that we're doing here, we would highly appreciate if you cast your vote. We will provide the link in the show notes. But I believe voting will end today, so it would be great if you could spare one minute after listening to this episode. We appreciate your support a lot. So without further ado, over to the interview between Dan Hoff and Matthew Stevenson. Greetings, this is Matthew Stevenson, and today on the podcast, I am joined by Dan Huff, currently the head of the politics department at the University of Sussex, a longtime expert in corruption, corruption-related issues, was one of the founding directors, the founding director of Sussex's uh, Center for the Study of Corruption, and has continued to produce a great deal of uh, fascinating scholarship on that topic, uh, from which I have learned a great deal. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Matthew. Great to be here. So maybe we can kick things off uh, by you telling me and our listeners a little bit more about your background and what got you interested in corruption as a topic. Why, as, as an up-and-coming political scientist, did you focus on this as the thing that you wanted to really do a deep dive into? Well, my interest in, in corruption, I guess, goes, goes all the way back to one specific day. And, and I, I'm not sure I realized it was going to be a long interesting corruption but it, it was my 14th birthday actually my, my 14th birthday was the 24th of September 1988 and any sports aficionados around the world might, might remember that as being in the middle of the Seoul Olympic Games and it was the same day as the 100 meters final at the Seoul Olympics and that was the day that that, that Ben Johnson won the gold medal and I, I was and, and still am for my sins a big sport fan so of course I was watching this as a 14 year old boy 100 meters is the blue ribbon event and Ben Johnston was, was was off the radar he won that race by a country mile and the, because the Olympics were in Korea and I live in the UK I, I'd sort of gone to bed later that evening and I, I got up the next day and my, my mother who's also a, a sports buff like me said you know that Ben Johnson he's been disqualified uh, and I said has he uh, and she said yeah he cheated he took drugs and I said mummy hasn't You're clearly going mad. I don't know what you, you've been watching, but there's no way anyone takes drugs to in Olympic sporting events. You know, I'm 14 years old. This is this is a world of naivety that I, I guess I've, I've left a little bit since then. But um, eventually, of course, the, the penny does drop. And ben Johnson has cheated. And, and this, for me, was totally incomprehensible. I didn't understand how that could happen. You just turn up and run as fast as you can. And that's what it was all about. There's nothing more pure than the 100 meters race. It's get from A to B as quick as you can. And Ben Johnson, of course, had cheated. And 
I felt a sense of personal injustice to this. And of course, I'd never met Ben Johnson. I'd never seen him live, but I felt that he'd betrayed me as a sports fan. And I couldn't really articulate it like that at 14. But the instinct was there that this is an injustice. This is wrong. And it's, it's fundamentally wrong. And you need to answer for this, Johnson. And you need to, you know, you need to pay a penalty. And of course he did. His career was, was ruined as a result. And so that was where I felt that these injustices, the, these cheats, and that's effectively what corruption is. It's cheating. That they, they can't be allowed to get away with this. It's just not right. And that's where the, the, the first sort of um, step was made in my mind towards taking this a bit more seriously than I'd ever done before. Now, academically, it took a few years for, for that to, to, to mutate into, uh, in, into research projects and, to, and into things that were going to keep me occupied on a day-to-day basis. But by the time I'd, I got to my doing my doctoral work, which was actually on, on German politics, and, uh, and regionalism in Europe. I, I mixed the two things together. So I wasn't really on corruption, but Germany was rocked by a number of scandals at the time. Helmut Kohl was at the centre of them. There was an illegal uh, funding scandal that he was in the middle of um, for his party, the Christian Democratic Union. So as I was finishing my doctoral work, I began to look more and more at, at party funding and the way that German politicians were, were, were getting away with it, quite frankly, and, and were illegally funding their, their campaigns. And Helmut Kohl, you know, highly respected leader of Germany at the time, was at the centre of this. So that was my first, I did a postdoctoral project on that and, and looking at how the system allowed such, uh, such behaviour to happen. And that eventually mutated into a job at Nottingham with Paul Hayward, um, who, of course, another, uh, um, another corruption scholar, um, very, you know, very well-known corruption scholar. And I then moved on um, to a permanent job, um, as young academics do at the University of Sussex. And uh, that, that's where I started to, to, to build, slowly but surely, uh, a team around me who were looking at corruption in, in all its, its many facets. So it started with Ben Johnson and ended up with a corruption centre in Sussex. It's a fascinating trajectory, in part because the two formative events that you describe once in your childhood and then once as you were um, coming to intellectual maturity as a, as a young scholar, both involve things that can plausibly be considered corruption, but aren't maybe in the heartland of what's considered corruption. There's cheating in sports, which I know in the anti-corruption movement these days, there's been an increased emphasis on sports corruption, sports cheating as part of the anti-corruption agenda you know, for for better or worse. Um, And then party finance illegalities, which of course often involve conventional corruption, like people taking bribes or or embezzlement, but sometimes involves a host of activities that while perhaps illegal are not normally slotted with, I don't know, the the usual core black corrupt acts that people typically have in mind, like like bribery and embezzlement. Um, Do you think of these things as kind of all of a piece coming back to your 14-year-old self is, is kind of the the core thing that concerns you less the particular categorization of a dishonest act or an act of cheating, but just cheating in general. Um, is, is that the, the main thing that you're focused on? Well, I think there's a couple of parts to the, to, to the answer I'd give to that. The, the first one is that the two events that I described are quite different in one key aspect. Ben Johnson clearly broke the rules. No one says that taking the amount of anabolic steroids that he took was legal. No, he doesn't even say it himself. He, he says it's, this is obviously against the rules. Helmut Cole's position was that he was bending rules. He was playing around the edges of rules. Now, people disagreed with him on that. 
And I think their case was quite strong. But Cole certainly was of the opinion that much of what he was doing was was on the outer edges, but was just about acceptable, given the political challenges he was facing at, and Germany was facing at that time. So I think there is a difference between the two events. For, for me, though, I think one of the, the key things that, br- that, that brings this stuff together is morality, actually, and a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And uh, way more intelligent people than me have been you know, pondering over that question for a long time. Whose morality do we go by? How do we come up with um, moral frameworks that help shape our behaviour? And I think that's at the core of what, I, of what I do. In terms of sports, I'm a season ticket holder at a League One football team in Britain. And for those who don't know what that means, that means that my team's not very good. And the, I, I travel around the country watching these claims. The only thing I demand of them is that they try hard. That's it. Give it 100%. And when a former player of ours, Andy Mangan, for anyone who knows the case, was convicted of, of betting on games where he was playing and actively trying to lose, that's where the rubricant is crossed. He, he, you know, I, I can forgive the rubbishness. I can forgive people being appalling. But the, the, the moral core of, the, of professional sport has to be that you're giving it your best shot. And if it's not, then it's just not acceptable. Now, it could be not acceptable in, uh, in a sense that you, know, you change your sporting allegiance or it could be that you, you, you are crossing... Uh, lines that will get you into trouble, where you'll get fined, where you'll get put in prison as a worst case scenario. So I think it's more about questions of, of what's right and wrong. And that's where I think issues of legal corruption, something I've been working on a little bit of late, come into this because it's a, you know, that, that's got a moral core to it as well. Um, and also the, the, the book that I'm, I'm just setting out on writing now about sport and integrity, it's, it's about trying to work out what integrity actually means in a practical, real world sense. Uh, and and that's, that, those are the type of issues that I think get me out of bed in the morning. I want to come back to the sports and integrity issue. I think I did not realize that you were working on a book right now on that topic. I'm a little bit more familiar with your earlier work, your 2017 mm. book on analyzing corruption, which is kind of a general bird's eye view perspective of the problem, and, and then some of your, your scholarly articles. But before we return to the topic of sports and, and corruption, can you talk a little bit more about the kinds of research that you did or the kinds of questions that you explored after you made this transition? You started out as an academic as a scholar of Germany and German politics and, and bending or possibly breaking rules related to campaign finance. But then you describe making this transition to focusing more on what we might call, for lack of a better term, traditional corruption, studying with people like Paul Haywood, uh, and then uh, at Sussex, your involvement at, with the founding of the center. So can you tell a, a little bit to me and also to our listeners the, the, about the, the nature of that research for the last three or four years of your career? Yeah, I mean, you say the last three or four years, I've been head of department for three and a half years. So, um, you know, not, not the ideal scenario for doing lots of new research, but that will be coming to an end in due course as these things do. So I'll obviously get back on the saddle more fully, there, get back in the saddle more fully then. I, th- I think the key thing for me is that I found a number of years ago that there were discussions in, in, in the corruption world that I felt, felt were interesting, but not really going down the right track. And a, a classic one, which, which you've been part of, Matthew, is about what works and, 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 and how we know that it works and why lots of the ideas that folks come up with don't work. And I find those interesting, but I also find them a, a little misplaced at times because we can end up sort of arguing w- with each other about quite abstract ideas and abstract things. And whilst they're important, the, the real world sometimes gets a bit lost en route. So much of the stuff that I'm interested in is about the impact of given policies, ideas, agendas on the way that people actually behave. So I, I found 
I found myself thinking about uh, the key drivers of corrupt practice or not corrupt practice or why some, in some contexts a policy will have um, a clear positive outcome, but the same thing will have a very different outcome in a different setting. So I think there's a group of people who, who really try to, to make sense of these questions so that we can begin to think about these real world impacts. Linked in with that, I, felt, I feel that corruption researchers are really impatient. They expect things to change tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, then definitely by the weekend. And, you know, it took Britain 300 years to go from being a really quite corrupt country to being a bit less of a corrupt country. And why would it take Bangladesh 12 months? I, I don't really get it. And so I think some of my, my thinking is about how do we understand gradual change? And Mick Johnson's done a lot of this. You know, he, he talks about this in, in, in his monographs about the need to give people space to, to articulate their, art, their interests. And his, I think his agenda is really interesting. And um, I think his 2005 book was, was, was a real catalyst for me in tr trying to just show a bit of patience in all of this and working out what broader trajectories are. Now, in terms of the detailed research that I do, well, it does bring me back to, to the book that I'm sort of just setting out on now about integrity, because you can't press a switch and suddenly everybody's wonderfully nice. There are norms, there are morals that shape behaviour that I think you've got to get a real grip on before you can start enacting policy that makes a difference. And an international and local and a national sport is, is a great laboratory for looking at that in more detail. So a, a ton of, of interesting things to unpack there. As you may know, if you've been following what I've been saying and writing about this, I'm very sympathetic uh, to the position that we need to have a bit of patience and we can't expect uh, modern countries, especially poor countries struggling with extraordinary challenges to fix these deep-rooted problems in the space of you know, a year or two. Um, that's not, not terribly realistic. At the same time, I should say, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, I can understand the perspective of activists and reformers in those countries who might get a little bit impatient hearing from, you know, the American or the, or the uh, person from the United Kingdom, you know, just wait a few centuries and then, then you'll get to where, where we are now. One thing, though, before we get there that you said that I thought found really intriguing as part of your research is that certain policies that might have a, a positive or helpful effect in one country in one context can actually have a different or quite negative uh, effect in a, in a different context. In the interest of getting a little more, more practical, as you, as you just suggested, as opposed to being maybe excessively abstract as, as academics are sometimes want to do, can you say a little bit more on that? Are there particular examples or particular ways you can cash that out? What, what kinds of things have you learned from your research or that of others have this interesting property where you know, the same policy intervention might have very different effects depending on the context in which it is implemented? Yeah, I was aware that when I was saying that this is all too um, abstract, I was being quite abstract. I, that, that, that irony wasn't lost on me in my previous answer. Well, there's a couple of things that I, I flag up. One, one is, is very well known, and that's things like anti-corruption agencies. We know that in certain contexts, they've had uh, very positive impacts, whether they be in Hong Kong, Singapore, or, 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 or a number of smaller European states. But we also know they've had really much less positive impacts in other places. And I would argue that Poland is a good example where the, 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 traditionally the PIS has been very close to the anti-corruption agency. And that's, I guess, not led to, to, to universally accepted positive outcomes. So I, th I think issues like that, I've always found quite, quite interesting. Also, the, the way that democracy is organised, I mean, I did quite a bit of work on Kenya um, for my 2013 book, and there was definitely the assumption that bringing in democracy, bringing in competitive elections is generally going to be a step in the right direction towards getting your governance right. And, and most of us will, will, will recognise that, will understand the logic, but also it, you might get it wrong. 
And many of the biggest corruption scandals in Kenya have been directly related to the way that politics is organized, the way that electoral competition is organized, and to the way that rules are, are, are not, um, that they don't have the depth that they would have elsewhere. So the openness to, to developing as an electoral democracy has not always helped Kenyan development move forward. So I, I think you can, you, you can have things where um, we understand the trajectory, we understand the logic of what's going on, but many of the steps you have to take are very dangerous and awkward and difficult steps, and knowing exactly how to get them right is a real challenge. And those are the sorts of challenges I find quite interesting. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, the Kenya example and the way you framed it naturally invites the following provocative, uh, maybe excessively so, question. So, so are you saying, Professor, that Kenya should not have moved in the direction of democratization and more open elections? Because in that context, it just exacerbated corruption. And if that's not what you're saying, what are what you am saying, I saying exactly? Yeah. No, this is the question. I guess when one makes comments like that, one should generally expect that as a follow up. And, and, you know, so that's fair enough. Now, what I'm saying is that sometimes things that you try don't quite work out as you want them to. And we have to be, as grown adults, aware that we don't always get things right. We don't always know what's going to happen. You know, the future is famously difficult to predict. And, and I think the Kenyan case is a prime example of that. You can get things wrong, but you can get them wrong for the right reasons. That's what has happened over, uh, over decades in Kenya. And of course, you know, you've got to deal with Kenya as it is now. You've got to think about ways to put that right. And saying, right, wipe it all away and start again, one, it ain't awfully practical. But two, I'm not sure it's the best idea either. Um, you have to think about very small steps where you can quantify or at least qualify what you think success would be moving forward. So it, it's absolutely not a case of never go down the democratic route. Of course not. But what it is, is we have to learn a little bit from some of the lessons that, that we've seen there. And that's that if you get these rules wrong, then it can lead to a type of competition that does bring a particular type of corruption with it. So I want to pick up again on this theme of incremental change, which, as you know, is something I've written about. And, and I think you and I are pretty close to agreement on, on this. And that maybe puts us in uh, disagreement with other influential voices in the anti-corruption world and, and the policy world. But there's a challenge in terms of this incremental thinking. Well, well many, but one that I've, I've written about a little bit recently. So one of the a couple challenges of incremental reform or that approach. So one, as I was suggesting before, saying be patient may not be really something that people who are struggling with these issues in their own countries really want to hear. They want to, They would like to be able to make progress against this difficult issue more quickly. But also, if we think, as many do, that corruption is often part of systems and that it's deeply entrenched and reaches the highest levels of government, there is some understandable skepticism about the kinds of incremental reforms, especially those where rigorous analysis and assessment is possible as to whether they're really getting at the heart of the problem, right? So we can implement a new public expenditure tracking survey or audit system or, you know, train uh, some cops a little bit better than maybe we'll get a measurable, you know, 17.6% reduction in missing funds in the local uh, social welfare program. Whatever, yeah. But like, yeah. but you can, you see where the critique is coming, like, but that's, that doesn't help if your system is so thoroughly corrupted, if the highest level people have de facto impunity from genuine accountability. So I can hear the voice in my head and I'll just articulate it for you to address. Isn't there a problem with this excessive focus on incrementalism that we're just like nibbling around the edges, kind of softening a little bit the, the, the sharpest edges of a bad system. But you're, if you're not being big and bold and dramatic, you're not really getting at the heart of that bad system. 
Well, does big, bold and dramatic work would be my question. We've had big, bold and dramatic initiatives. I mean, how much good has UNCAC genuinely done? Question mark. That, and there's a question to answer. I mean, you, you no doubt come up with things that, that, that have improved as a result of it. But well, has it got rid of corruption? Well, clearly it hasn't. Maybe we need to think about, you know, as Paul Hayward has been doing actually elsewhere, think about the sectoral problems, that think about the specific challenges and then come up with a set of responses to those. I mean, if, if there are big, bold, brash answers out there, I'm all for them. But I don't know what they are. Uh, and I think we've we've tried a lot of that. And the big, bold, brash thinking has, has not really come up with the good. So I think, you know, think idealistically. Th- th- think about things you'd ultimately like to do, but think about how you're going to do them as well. It makes me think a little bit of, of, of Willy Brandt in, in Germany and the way that Willy Brandt dealt with, dealt with East Germany and uh, the Soviet Union. Now, many on the right in Germany at the time felt that Willy Brandt was selling out. Why are you having relations with, with, with East, East Germany and the Soviet Union? These guys are communists. These guys, are, they want to take over West Germany given after chance. Why are you negotiating with them? Why are you just being normal with them? And of course, Brandt's point was, well, everything else has failed. So I'm trying to d- develop a relationship that over time might bring positive, positive outputs. Now, he would never have said, and, and in 1989, the wall will fall. You know, he, he, he couldn't have predicted that, but he sets the scene for what he hopes ultimately was positive change. And, and I think there's something of that in, in the anti-corruption. We don't have to come up with the big answers, but if we do, all good. But we haven't been able to do it yet. So I think a little bit of thoughtful engagement in the right way, at the right time uh, to try and achieve clearly quantifiable ends might make a bit more sense than than looking someone who's quite corrupt in the eye and telling them they're corrupt and they need to to move aside because we sort of know that doesn't work either. Yeah, fascinating. As you know, I'm I'm quite sympathetic to that perspective. I I'm so much more I could say about this, but I do want to come back to the corruption sport topic because it sounds okay. like it's almost like you're completing the circle. This is where you started. Uh, when you were 14. And by the way, I didn't realize we were almost exactly the same age. Like our birthdays are literally like five days apart. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, but, um, and now as the head of the politics department at a distinguished UK university, like this is what you're, do- you're doing your next book about. So this is not my area of expertise, but I want to maybe begin the conversation about this issue by articulating for you a critique I have seen of the degree of emphasis, recent emphasis in the anti-corruption community. And I suppose as a scholar who works on this, you would count uh, as part of that community, putting so much emphasis on corruption in sports. And the critique goes something like this. Sure, it's a problem. Uh, it's not good if athletes are uh, doping and it's not good if referees are taking bribes or if you know players in soccer or basketball or whatever are, you know, making agreements with gamblers to, you know, rig the outcome of games. This is bad. But in the grand scheme of things, with respect to the anti-corruption agenda, which is dealing with things like people looting their country's health service or, you know, robbing huge quantities of of money, looting the treasury uh, and condemning huge numbers of people to poverty. Uh, Isn't there something, and I'll frame the critique in sort of sharper terms to give you an opportunity to really respond in sharp terms. Isn't there a little bit kind of self-indulgent of like a bunch of principally Westerners who tend to be sports fans talking a lot about like sports corruption, not as like a niche issue, but as like a thing where like Transparency International starting a program on corruption in sports. And, you know, I I worked with someone once at a major international organization who shifted away from the thing he was working on with me because he was going to go take over their sports and corruption unit and so forth. I I have heard people 
say things like, like I just said to you, uh, maybe they're too polite to say them to you, but I'll say them to give you a chance to respond in kind. Why would you allocate your time and attention and uh, human capital talent to what some people would think of as like a secondary or tertiary issue in this larger category of corruption, anti-corruption? Well, I spent 25 years of my life trying to avoid talking about sport because I'm, I'm obsessed enough with the damn stuff outside of my work that I've, I've tried to really avoid it. But in the end, I've given up. So on a, on a personal note, it's just simply that, that that I have really come full circle back back to it from, from that, you know, that those Seoul Olympics in 1988. The other much more important answer, uh, r- rather than me just giving up and, and admitting my own obsessions, is that sport is a multi-billion dollar business. It really is. And anyone who doubts me, just think about what's happening a year from now, this week. The whole world will be on, have its eyes on Qatar as the, uh, as the FIFA World Cup kicks off. And um, there's a whole industry of sports washing that goes on. And it's not just Qatar that does this. And the profits that are made from this are um, off the radar. I couldn't give you an exact number, but there are many noughts in it. Um, there are lots of individuals who make lots of money out of doing things that are, let's just call them inappropriate in a sporting context. And of course, they're not just people who, who make billions out of it. There are the small, petty, corrupt individuals as well. And I refer you again to the former Shrewsbury Town player, Andy Mangan, who, who, who was betting on games that I went to pay good money to watch. And, uh, and he wasn't trying. You know, I, I take your point. That is not the, the be all and end all of life as we know it. But it goes to show that the sports corruption is not just about Andy Mangan. It goes right the way through to how FIFA... Uh, um, doles out prizes such as who's going to host a football World Cup. So, so there's many, many sort of billions of dollars riding on this. That's the first and most important one. That can well be rationalised in, in a purely economic sense. The, the second thing is it does tell us a lot about other corruption debates. And to be honest, this is the more interesting one for me. I, I get that there's billions of pounds in sport, but it's more that you can learn quite a lot from how corruption functions by looking at the sporting context. So in a theoretical sense, you can learn a bit about legal corruption. You can certainly learn a bit about integrity and appropriateness by looking at the way football works. And that's, I guess, where most of my efforts are going to be concentrated over the the next few months. Um, Because integrity, I would argue, is not something in plentiful supply in football. So we need to work out, one, why? Two, can we draw any lessons that we can then bring to more overtly political uh, um, sectors? And and of course, if if we can draw those lessons, how do we make them work in practice? So maybe sport's actually quite a nice laboratory to test some of the corruption ideas that that we discuss in other settings. So great. I would love to follow up on both prongs of that, especially the second one. With with respect to the first one, the only question I'd like to put to you you here um, before we move on to that that second thing where your real interests lie is you say correctly, sports is a multi-billion dollar industry. And of course it is. But like there are a lot of multi-billion dollar industries. Some in the anti-corruption world, we focus specifically on those things. The natural resources sector is the most obvious one where people think like corruption and natural resources, and maybe to some extent now corruption in healthcare. The question I suppose that, that I would put to you here is, is there something distinctive about the economics of sports that makes the corruption there in some ways different or special or distinctive or exemplary or something um, that would justify or explain 
focusing on corruption in that industry as opposed to any number of other industries that also generate billions of pounds or dollars in aggregate revenue per year. And of course, this, your second point is, is, I think, a different aspect of this. That has to do with more with what sport or corruption sports can show us about corruption generally. But on that first point, is, is there something distinctive? Uh, again, I won't say unique because nothing is unique, but distinctive about the economics of sports that people should really understand when thinking about corruption in that sector is distinct from other sectors? Well, I'm not sure. That I'd start with economics, actually. It's interesting that you made, you, you made that point there. For me, that the problem you've got with sport is that, that, that customers behave differently. I mean, if anyone called me a customer as a football fan, then the conversation is going to end pretty quickly. I'm not a customer. Uh, let, let's be crystal clear on that one. But I'm treated as one. And of course, I'm captive. I have an identity with my sports teams, for better or worse. You know, my wife thinks I'm medically insane for some of the, some, some of the passions I have to do with sport. But I, I am absolutely captive to this. And I expect my sports teams to, to do certain things. I want them to be important sort of pillars of a community. I want them to make sure that it embraces their identity that I can, I can link to. So, for example, the team, the football team I support, Shrewsbury Town, a very small team. They're important. They, the players go into schools. They talk about, you know, how important it is to look after your body. They talk about how you can achieve your goals because many young kids want to be footballers. And I think they, they do quite a good community role. So when football as an industry gets taken over and moving away from the community base from which it started way back in, in the 1880s here in the United Kingdom, then I personally find that, you know, find that quite difficult to deal with. I have an, I have a, an idea of what sport is, and I don't feel that it's at all um, reflected by much of the sport I see on, on TV here in the UK and beyond anymore. So for that reason, I, I think there is something unique about sport. And that's that the, the, these the people like me and the many millions of others around the world have relationships with these bodies, with these entities that you just don't have with ESO or Shell. You know, the relationship is totally different. And I think sport is, and I, I'm not so keen on the word unique either, but sports relationships are definitely not run-of-the-mill compared to many other areas where we look for corruption. So that really suggests the two prongs of, that you mentioned earlier, the two bases of, of the argument for why study research focus on sports and corruption really are intertwined. They're, the way you just said is not really distinct because the, the explanation for the first, right, it's not just that there are billions of dollars involved, but there are billions of dollars in a particular sector. And even the use of the word sector you're suggesting is maybe you know, it has certain connotations that someone might resist that's related to like the ideals of sports or the ideology of sports in some broad sense. So let's so let's come back. Let's come over to that. One of the facts. I don't really buy the, you know, the many sports that I follow put themselves on a higher plane. Cricket has a spirit of cricket idea cricket is different now I, I must say i'm a massive cricket fan but that that's hogwash there is no spirit of cricket you know people play particularly at the higher levels but not just at the higher levels they play within the rules of the game and they'll push the rules of the game as far as they can possibly take them the notion that cricket is any different to any other sport is just something that's pushed by people who want cricket to be seen as better because they like it so i've got no truck with with that the rules are there to shape the way you you behave and, and that's something i think gets you know sports fans can sometimes forget Right. But I, I took your larger point to be people are invested, emotionally invested in sports yeah, in a way right. they're not invested in their oil company or their health provider or their auto. Maybe some people with cars really care deeply about like auto brands are used to, but you're right. Sports is distinctive. But one of the things you said earlier, it's not just that people are passionate about sports in a certain way or, or care deeply about it or look for sports to be some kind of symbol of of um, fair play, which is, I think, another argument that I've sometimes heard for why sports corruption is worthy of attention from the community because of its symbolic value. You also said 
better understanding issues of corruption or more broadly lack of integrity in sport can shed light on, can inform us about these kinds of problems more broadly and more generally. So this is like the flip side of the idea that sports is somehow distinctive or special. This is actually maybe, it's not necessarily distinctive or special, but it's a useful case study to reveal larger issues in sectors that other people who are not passionate sports fans might think of as more important. So you know where I'm going with this. I know you haven't written the book yet. Your thinking is still in its early stages, but I suspect you have some preliminary ideas or examples that could put some flesh on those bones. Like, what do you have in mind? What can we learn from corruption, fraud, lack of integrity, et cetera, in the sporting world uh, that shines light on these problems more broadly? Yeah, well, there's two things I'd say there. I mean, the fundamental question in, in the sporting world is actually a really simple one. Uh, in terms of professional sports anyway, not in terms of, of the sport that you and I may indulge in. But do, do we do we play sport to make money or do we make money to play sport? Okay, And, and your answer to that question is really important because if, if you're, a, if you're an, an institution or an entity that exists to make lots of money, and that's why if you're the Glazers from Florida and you buy Manchester United Football Club, you're, you're in it for the money. You know, and sure, you wouldn't mind United winning a few things as well, but then you'll gain more money. So, so their, their understanding of what sport's all about is a business to get them more wedge. You know, it's, it's very simple, really. Whereas for many Manchester United football fans, you know, they want more money so they can win more trophies and, and they want more glory. And quantifying glory for them is about, you know, what happens on the pitch. It's about the trophies. It's about they're going into work on a Monday morning stuff and, and, and talking to your, your friends who don't support that team. So I think where you are on that is, is a useful starting point as to what, what you think sport is all about and the role that corruption will or won't be playing in it. Now to the second point about what we can learn from it. Well, if I look at professional football, so, so soccer, you know, as, as I guess it would be called in North America. One of the things you notice is that the people who play the game will do absolutely anything on the pitch to win that match. OK, and you'll see them if the ball goes out of play, they won't throw it back to the other team. They'll throw it as far away from the other guy as they possibly can. If they're touched, if they're if just touched, they'll fall over to try and win a free kick. You know, the, the, the idea is not now that you're fouled and you get a free kick, you win a free kick. You go out to win the free kick. And this is a whole different idea from where uh, football was 30 years ago, for better or for worse. Now, I would argue once a game moves away from having a core where it says you, you have to just try and play the game in such a way that you concentrate on the game itself uh, and what's actually happening when, when the game is in flow and you move away to thinking about the little things that are not, strictly speaking against the rules that are against what we would understand as the moral code of, of the sport the sport itself then you're moving away into a bad place and football is played by this and it's played by it on the pitch it's played by it off the pitch it's played by the way it's organized and by the way people approach the game and i see it with my two six-year-old boys i see people diving on a football pitch to win a foul they're six matthew where have they got this from it's not an eight to them um, what they've seen, of course, is, is people on the TV doing it. So I think once morals are moved away from this, and this is the difficult bit, whose morals, what morals? But once you move away from those, and it's all about doing whatever is acceptable to win the game, then you're not on the right track. Then you're going to get some of the outcomes that we see. And much as I'm not a rugby union fan at all, even though I lived in Twickenham for 15 years, which is the home of English rugby, what I would say is there's an awful lot you can learn from games that get it right. Respect for the officials in rugby union is completely different. I know the NFL is on a drive where you're not allowed to taunt people as and when um, you, 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 know, you do something good. They'll penalise the players if they, if they sort of, you know, 
you know, point at an opposition player because they've done well against them. And I think th these are quite important steps to try to get people to realise they have a responsibility to play the game in the right way. If they don't, well, it won't affect them themselves, but the broader picture will be deleterious. And that's exactly the same with corrupt practice. It's exactly the same with the trends that we see. One step doesn't ruin everything, but it might lead to another step and another one and another one. And you'll find yourself suddenly in a position where integrity doesn't matter very much. It's the outcome that matters. You can get away with what you want, then you'll go ahead and do it. And we're into the very sort of homo economicus position of what, whatever you can rationally do and not be punished for, then you, you will do. And if sport's in that position, given the loyalties of those who follow it, given that the attitudes of people who, who support these institutions all around the planet, then I think uh, it's not in a great place. One of the things that's interesting is when I invited you to give some examples of how corruption in sport can teach us something about corruption generally, the particular examples you gave from sport didn't seem like corruption in sport, uh, unless that's defined extremely broadly. I mean, throwing the ball where the other guy can't get it is not exactly... Like, just I took about integrity there. Integrity. I, the, book, the book's not going to be called, it, it doesn't have the, the, the C word on the front page. Totally fine. So, so that was more of an observation than something important. Mm -hmm. But let me, let, me take, let me take you at, at your word that there's something we can learn about these patterns that we see in sports, the way people behave and what younger people, amateurs, et cetera, learn from the kind of win at all costs mentality that's infected sport generally, or maybe certain sports more than others. So taking that and, and moving forward with it, as you know, one of the debates in uh, the corruption, anti-corruption academic literature, not focused on sport, but focused on other kinds of corruption, is how one tries to change cultures of corruption once they became, become embedded. Right? There are these issues of social norms, I think is the academic-y, jargony term that is often used. And it sounds like what you're describing in uh, sports is the, the erosion of certain norms that go beyond the rules of the game. So in the traditional anti-corruption literature, people debate a variety of ways to address this problem. Some focused on education, uh, some focused on doing other things to try to change a culture through positive example. Um, some focused on the need for stricter rules, more rigorously enforced, right? So I to take the analogy back to sports, some people say, look, if you want football players to stop diving, you, the referees should more aggressively penalize people who could be shown perhaps on instant replay to have engaged in dives. That the idea that we're going to stop people at that level, at least, from having a kind of win at all costs mentality, do what the rules will allow you to do, is unrealistic. Uh, we just need better and more rigorously enforced rules on the assumption that we're in a context where we're dealing with people who will try to get away with what they can get away with. Helmut Kohl, right? Is He's playing on his particular soccer field and he's, you know, diving or tossing the ball away and he thinks he's, he's barely within the rules and other people think not. But of course, there's another voice in the anti-corruption world that says an overemphasis on law and legal solutions and rule-based solutions and punishments and so forth neglects the degree to which other sorts of things matter and the degree to which this is a more provocative and controversial argument, but I'm sure you'll be familiar with it, rule-based solutions can crowd out softer norms, right? There's a claim that if you make everything about the rules, then it'll just worsen people's inclination to ignore anything that's not codified in the rules. So your pitch for what, if you pardon the terrible pun, we don't use that word in the US, so it was unintentional trust me, um, the, part of your pitch for why we should be looking at integrity of sports is we can learn something for this larger, uh, these larger debates. So, so what do we learn from this problem in sports about this set of debates? If we have seen the erosion of certain norms of 
you know, sportsmanship, to sound old-fashioned about it, in, let's say, uh, European professional football. What do we do? Yeah, well, I think I give two examples that show, one, what we can do, and, and, and two, what we can't directly do. Before I say in that, though, I mean, you've got to have laws that people understand and people have um, a respect for, at least nominally. Um, otherwise, it all fall, falls apart. So saying that the rule of law is not where you start, well... In sport, you sort of need to have pretty clear rules about what's going on. Otherwise, of course, uh, there'll be plenty of ambiguity about what's acceptable. Now, most people in football, they do understand what's going on. They understand how many players should be playing. They understand the rules of the game. They understand offside. They understand, you know, how, how the game is structured. And, and so that's not really the problem. The rules are there. The issue comes, though, and I compare two things. And I'm, this is getting a bit football geeky, but, but we'll go there anyway. First of all, one of the major problems that I have, and particularly as a father of two six-year-olds, right, is the abuse that referees get. Football players will run at referees and they'll yell at them, they'll shout at them, they'll scream at them, they'll use colourful language, and the referee seems to stand there and just sort of, you know, tries to bat them away but does very little. Now, in that incident, there's something that can be done about that. The referee's got to start banning yellow cards about. He's got to start saying, if you come and talk to me like that again, I don't care what you're saying, you're going to get a yellow card. Now, there'll be carnage for six months, Matthew. There'll be football games ending with nine against nine because people are being sent off for dissent. But after the six months, people had realised that you run up to a referee and you say anything that's, um, uh, uh, that's out of order, you're going to get in trouble. So you'll stop doing it. So the rules enforced, and they sort of exist anyway on, in this regard. You're not allowed to go and, and call the referee everything under the sun. Um, if they were properly enforced there, we would soon, within 12 months, after a load of bleating by, by, by individuals, we would soon have a completely different culture around the role of referees in sport. And that can only be good. Okay. Second thing is much more difficult to, to, to solve, and that's the issue of simulation, as it's called in the European game these days, diving. People throwing themselves on the floor to try and win a free kick in a good position so they maybe can score or, or win a penalty. The problem with that one, it's a judgment call. Okay, got discretion, referees. And even when you watch something back five times on a replay, you know, sometimes not really that easy to tell whether the guy fell over, dived, or was caught, and his momentum took him over. The, the right answer is not clear there. And particularly people who are very good at, at diving, stand up Jack Grealish for anyone who knows who he is, that, that they're fantastically well-versed in falling over at the right moment. So the referees are never going to get those all right. That's where only a cultural change about what's appropriate will take place. Now, I, I don't know how to do that other than to try and make it crystal clear that I think that, the, um, that, that it's not, um, not a great advert for the game when folks are, are deliberately falling on the floor all the time. So the first one, I can give you a list of things that referees should do to improve behaviour and stop, if, uh, stop individuals trying to bully other individuals, like the referee and the linesman and, and the fourth official. The second one, then we're in the judgment territory. Then things have got more difficult because the norms now are so strong in football um, that there's an argument that this is actually just perfectly acceptable. And people like me have got to change where we are to recognise that, 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 that winning a free kick, that's 2021, Dan, and I'm perhaps stuck in 1991. So for our listeners who don't I've care no at all about football, about, yeah. <laughs> about uh, football, this is what I'm going to keep pressing you on. Okay, so yeah. so we have listeners. I'm sure many of our listeners are passionate about uh, football, what my people would call soccer. Um, other people, like other sports, don't care about football. Other people listening to us probably right now probably do not care at all about sports. But part of the reason we went down this road is I was actually inviting you to try to explain to those people 
why they should care, right? The person in our imaginary person, our listening audience, maybe we have a real person in our listening audience who's like this, who's thinking, why is such a, a talented scholar who's written so many important things about corruption uh, turning his attention to sports? Oh, like he's, he can do what he wants, like that's tenure for you. But like, why is this important to the broader community? You said earlier in our conversation, even that person should care. Even if you do not care about football or sports as such, there's something important that we can learn from the dynamics that you're analyzing outside of the sporting context. Yeah. And I want to press you a little bit. So those examples you just gave seem great and interesting and useful, The how we could solve the problem of people uh, threatening or haranguing referees and how it may be much more difficult to solve the problem of uh, people engaging. I love the euphemism simulation. Uh, make, like maybe that's part of the problem itself. So, okay. So talk, but talk now to our listener who really does not care about soccer or sports generally and explain what, what we learned from that about the broader struggle for integrity in other contexts. I mean, shocked, Matthew. You're telling me there are people out there who don't like football. Crikey! I, this is this is an epiphany. Um, no, I, it, it's, I totally understand the, the question. It's a very, very fair one. I would say, if you want to get integrity right, then there are things that you can do that will talk to rational actors. You can enforce rules. You can make it pretty clear what the punishments are. You know, you can you can send people off a football pitch, for example. You can be crystal clear about how you're going to enforce these rules, what the steps are, where the boundaries are, where you will go if you go over those boundaries, and you can actually carry that out. You can do it. And there's a whole host of examples. And I gave two very specific ones because I thought it would be useful to be less abstract and more specific. The whole host of examples where rules matter, threats matter, and talking to the rational instincts of individuals matter. But getting integrity right is only ever going to be half the story if you concentrate purely on rules-based solutions. You have to talk about broader norms-based answers to getting people to do what you want them to do without forcing them to do it, okay? Now, if you, and, and it may well be because you can't force them to do it. You know, it may well be that you have to find other ways of nudging them. I, I use that in the colloquial term, not in, in, the, in, the, in the nudge theory term, but nudging them in the right direction so that they, they can come to these conclusions themselves. They might be for the greater good if we can get integrity to being higher up all of our agendas. So sport is a wonderful tool for seeing how rules-based solutions and norms-based solutions interact, clash, sometimes don't fit together at all well, but we have to keep working through them to try and work out ultimately where we can get to the, the end point that we think is most, most acceptable. And I, I firmly believe that that's the same when you're talking about governance more broadly. It's not just about telling people what to do. It's so they understand why they're doing what you're telling them to do or you're nudging them to do. And they then eventually start to take it upon themselves to take that agenda forward as well. Do we have any positive examples from the sporting world of that kind of change taking place? You've, you've suggested in a previous conversation some negative examples where norms of integrity, fair play, sportsmanship, et cetera, have eroded. And so that's already useful as a cautionary tale about how these norms we can take for granted can crumble. Can you think of any, again, positive or encouraging examples of places where in the world of sport or elsewhere, if you want, we've, we've seen progress towards establishing or reestablishing norms of integrity and proper conduct where they had not been before? Well, I think I think that's a really good question. I think it's a really difficult question because I think that part of the, the, the challenge here is to, is to recognize that integrity has always existed, right? And it exists everywhere. There are good people everywhere. 
And you know that, Matthew, and our listeners know that. The challenge is to making it is making it aware that good people actually are not just that they're not sort of the black sheep of all of this. Good people exist in most walks of life, right? We have to try and find ways of getting good people to realize that they're not they're not the depths who lose out. Sorry, they're not the, the idiots who lose out by doing the right thing. And I think I think we see this really clearly in the development of sportsmanship around the approach to referees in rugby union. If you want a really specific example, because those referees can be the worst people in the world. They can get everything wrong, but rugby union players will not not say that in public. And they know that if they did, they get into trouble. And there's a genuine respect for the guy in the middle, who's often the smallest guy because he's a big unit, who gets it right. So I, I think things like that are quite hard to measure. They're quite hard to actually see. But then again, that's always the case with norms, right? They're not the type of things that you can measure. You can't measure them in the lack of people who've gone to prison because there's a lack of people who've gone to prison. You know, it doesn't work like this. It's a slow moving process of getting people to realize that doing the right thing is worthwhile. And I think that's always been out there. It's a question of being obvious about what it is, highlighting where good practice happens and stressing that the, these guys are not just the, the clowns who lose. They're, they're, they're a fundamental part to why sport is as great as it is. One thing you said that really resonates with me is this idea that it's important to recognize that even in systems where there's a lot of corruption, not everybody is corrupt. Yeah. Uh, and that sometimes one thing that, that I've often thought is that the rhetoric of anti-corruption activists and scholars to the effect that everyone is corrupt or corruption is pervasive or whatever can sometimes, I think, be unintentionally counterproductive by really making people feel like, oh, I didn't realize everyone was corrupt. Like, I, that's just the way the system is. So I think I think you're right that playing up uh, the fact that many people are are honest, that most people at least, you know, most people are imperfect, but I think most people at least try to do the right thing as to the best they can understand it. I, I will make a couple but The imperfect of- nature is important, Matthew. People yes. are imperfect. You know, if anyone expects a holier than thou outcome, then they don't know many people because people aren't able to do that. We are, we've all got imperfections and some of them come out on the sporting field. Some of them don't. Some of them are going to come out in, in, in the way that we govern ourselves because uh, that, that's the way sort of human beings tick. And I think that's a fundamental difference for, for my position is a fundamental difference to some of the, the folks who talk about rational actors behaving in rational ways, because I, I think they have a much darker understanding of human nature that I don't always recognize. So I will say, though, based on what you said before in the example that you gave about rugby union, when I invited you to like, can you show some place where we've managed to build up these norms? I'll make two observations. And of course, I'll invite you to respond if, if, if you choose, but you need not. Um, one is that it strikes me that while there may be some resemblances between integrity issues on the sports field, sports pitch, and in other contexts, the contexts you're describing are ones where it's pretty easy for everybody to see what everybody else is doing. Um, So in terms of drawing inferences about what behavior is appropriate or not appropriate or what people are doing or not doing, it's easier to see that. There are other examples of sports integrity problems where this may not be true. So doping may be one. Like sometimes you can kind of tell if someone's been taking a lot of steroids, but not always. Gambling is another place where it may be much harder to tell. And so I I guess I would sort of wonder uh, how one thinks about these issues in context where it's more difficult to see what other people are doing. But the other thing I want to point out, just to sort of press you in a friendly way, earlier, you gave your two examples of of things that can be addressed through rules that are rigorously enforced and treating people as rational actors and ones where it was really much harder. The one that you gave where it's easier to address with rules and kind of rational incentives was abuse of referees. 
And then we got to the point where I was asking you, how do you can change, can change social norms in a positive way, thinking about like where the rational actor system won't work. So it seems to me there's at least a little bit of a tension, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this and the way you approach this. You said, well, you look at rugby union and the norms about referees and the inference you draw from this is you can't always treat people as homo economicus rational actor. But, but earlier in our conversation, that was the specific context in which you seem to suggest treating people as rational actor homo economicus would absolutely work. Like do it for six months, people will get the message. So am, is there a tension or contradiction there? Or am I missing what? something? No, there is absolutely attention the way you, you the way you put it there. But I think you know what would happen if referees suddenly were empowered to really deal with what I think is a real problem, and that's the lack of respect for officials in 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 professional football. Then I'm not saying that suddenly the players would all be sweetness and light, and there'd be no problems elsewhere. They might think, you know what, badgering the referee is not working out anymore. He don't listen to me. In fact, I get myself in trouble. I've got to find other ways to get what I want. I've got to find other ways where I can, you know, manipulate the outcome. That's too, that's probably too harsh because it sounds like it's it's something that's against the rules. But there might be other tricks of the trade that the person can use to try and get what they want because they know that that particular option has uh, has been switched off. Now that is absolutely the way that the anti-corruption struggle works. No, it's not as if you solve one problem and that's it. It's gone. You know, it may well be that that, that the actors come back in another form and find other ways to, to, to indulge themselves in ways that we wouldn't necessarily agree with. So for me, it's not as if the rules approach will solve the problem there, but it will make a contribution to solving a very narrow, specific part of what I think is, is, is a major issue in football today. But it, it could well lead to a response from the actor who can no longer berate the referee that I can't predict you know, it may well be a type of infringement becomes the norm that I can never even think of. Therefore, this is where vigilance is always necessary. You've got to keep a lookout for, you know, how individuals behave. On the flip side, of course, not everybody berates the referee. Not everybody does that. There are plenty of people, and I do see it, in, in, and I play football myself in my age group football. There's a far fewer people do it there because, you know, it's just not part of the way we play the game. So people have different ways of approaching this. But I think the vigilance that goes with professional sport means that you should be aware that you're not going to solve this overnight. The second point about things that people could do, I mean, if you look at the way that sports governance works, certainly Premier League football clubs is a fair and proper person's test to see who can own Premier League football clubs. Now, that, that test is, is bordering on the useless. Anybody can pass that test if they've got half a brain. Um, and we've seen that with cases in, in, in recent years. So there is really an issue about what, what, what is a fit and proper person to own a football club? Is it someone with deep roots in that given community? Well, it's 2021. Globalization's with us, right? You know, it, I, think, I think that would be an unduly narrow way of, of looking at this and, 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 and a counterproductive way. But where does fit and proper begin and end? You know, they've never been bankrupt. That might be one thing. Or they've never been in prison. But again, it's pretty broad, big things. There should be other things we can ask as well. There's no consensus on that in Britain at the moment. The only thing that there is a consensus on is the current system's not very good. Again, it sounds a bit like an anti-corruption discussion elsewhere, right? People can agree on what they don't like. But what are you going to do to try and improve the levels of integrity, the way integrity is portrayed? That's when the politics and the norms gets right in the middle of our discussion. So we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to ask a, a final question or pair of questions to you uh, that, again, may be unfair and maybe putting you on the spot. And if you don't want to answer them, totally fine. But most of our 
conversation about corruption in sports has been focused on um, the athletes or maybe the athletes and the referees, the issues of integrity or lack of integrity on the field. What you just said, though, alludes to broader issues having to do with corruption in the sports industry. And again, I use that term advisedly. Not all sports fans would love thinking about it as it is industry, but, but it kind of is. There have been many, many concerns about corruption, both in the traditional sense, you know, bribery and so forth, with respect to, for example, selecting the locations of, of major sporting events, as well as other broader integrity issues, going back to you know, 14-year-old you thinking about feeling betrayed by Ben Johnson, uh, doping, and, and many doping issues have now involved not just athletes doing this individually, but organized systems, often with the support of and complicity of the government. So um, I want to translate those macro-level issues into two pretty specific questions, kind of put you on the spot questions, and they would be this. Was it right that Qatar got to keep the World Cup, that that's where that tournament is going to be played next year in light of the quite credible allegations that the selection of Qatar was uh, influenced by bribery? And the second question is, should the athletes from Russia have been allowed to compete in the most recent Olympic Games, not under the Russian flag, but they were all there and we knew who they were in light of the massive clearly established state-sponsored doping scandal that had been going on for years. There are two decisions by kind of the international sporting community, different bodies, but you know, the two, probably the two most prominent international sporting bodies to, you know, I don't want to load the question too much, but there were major allegations of integrity failings. And the consequences of those were seen in some quarters as insufficient. And I'm curious as someone who's much more expert on these issues than I am, both thinking about integrity and thinking about sports. What do you think about those two cases? What should have happened? We've got about two hours left for this. this yeah, we've got like Matthew, three right? minutes. So, yeah, so. no worries. Well, I mean, in many ways, I pin my colours to the mast with the Qatar question, because my 2017 book has got a picture of Seth Blatter on the front with Qatari money, well, fake money, but it was supposed to be Qatari money, raining down on Set Blatter uh, when it was announced that Qatar was um, was going to be hosting the 2022 World Cup. So I sort of, you know, give you an angle as to what I think about all of this. But what I would say is that the, the Qataris will defend themselves here because they will say, well, the process is what the process is. It's FIFA, that's the problem. And if you look at the way you win football World Cups, it's not just the Qataris have been accused of these things. Even the Germans have been accused of it. In France, Beckenbauer, one of the totemic figures of 20th century football, was, was accused of corrupt practice to get Germany uh, the, the World Cup just over a decade or so ago. So the system that FIFA creates for deciding who gets a football World Cup is arguably the bigger problem. Qatar was just pretty good at playing the game. And uh, that, that's the reason that ultimately they, that they won. So if you want to sort this out, you've got to change the way that FIFA decides who wins the, the right to host these tournaments. And FIFA has proven pretty systematic in not really understanding the point. Um, it doesn't allow any real external analysis of what it does. It wasn't really interested in learning lessons. And there was a whole heap of reports done on this and, and that the FIFA didn't want them to be published. And, and it, it's pretty clear that FIFA as an organisation has some fundamental governance issues that it needs to answer before we can be really sure that the next set of decisions that are made about things like a Football World Cup are made for the right reasons. And I'm not at all convinced they, they've done that. So should the Qatar World Cup have been moved? Well, you can argue, yes, but FIFA would then decide where it goes, would they? I mean, given that FIFA itself has these fundamental governance challenges, I'm not sure that's an awfully sensible position to be arguing for either. FIFA needs to, to fundamentally reform and be a little bit more open and transparent about what it does, why it does it, 
and how it does it. And discussions about having a football World Cup every two years, which you may or may not have picked up on. It's really about FIFA getting richer and FIFA's position at the top of the pyramid structure. It's not about the well-being of the game. So we have real challenges within football's global governance before we can even begin to unpack what we should do with the one case of, of Qatar next year. With the Russian athletes, no, they shouldn't have been allowed to compete. Russia was banned quite appropriately as well. Russia was, had a systematic system for cheating and um, it was caught red-handed and it should therefore have been banned. To therefore say that we're going to let some of your athletes in, we don't really know all we need to know about all of these athletes, strikes me as, as a cop-out of pretty, pr- pretty epic, in an athletic sense, proportions. So I, I, I view that very dimly. Russia, if it's not got its act together, if it's serving its time, should not be represented at the Olympic events. End of story in my book. Again, I don't run these things. So perhaps perhaps I might think differently if I did. But as things stand, I, I don't understand how that is, is seen as being a logical endpoint uh, of that pretty awful, in an athletic sense, uh, scandal. And other countries watch this. Kenya watches this. There's all sorts of allegations that have been made about the way that Kenya produces athletes and the way it deals with them. And I think when you can see that somehow or other, you know, Russian athletes get around this, then the message that's sent out there is not an awfully positive one. Great. Well, thank you very much. I realized that was uh, maybe a little bit unfair to spring those very specific questions uh, on you at the end, but you clearly had thought, uh, thought a great deal about both of them. And I think your answers make a great deal of sense. I will point out, and this is not to suggest at all any kind of contradiction in the answers you gave. It's more to highlight a tension that I think we struggle with all the time in, in the general world of anti-corruption as well. When talking about Qatar's position about why you know they shouldn't be singled out and punished uh, for basically paying bribes to get, for having their officials pay bribes to get the World Cup, uh, I was reminded of this uh, uh, saying, at least on this side of the pond, you know, hate, hate the game, not the player. Like we you may have caught us, but this is a system that's set up that creates these incentives to do this. And, you know, we are not behaving that much differently from others. But then I would imagine the Russians might say the same thing. Now, maybe they would be wrong, but maybe the Qataris would be wrong as well. The Russians might also say, hey, you know, well, they deny they even did anything bad. But like you caught us. But the IOC doesn't allow you to. What's that? Yeah, the IOC doesn't allow you to create an institutionalized system of doping. Um, FIFA does encourage you to pay bribes to get. Well, it does encourage you to play the game a certain way to get a football World Cup. So, so they're not exactly the same. Well, right. So I suppose so the a difference might be the gravity of the offense and whether it was against the the rules or not. My impression is that the allegations against Qatar went far beyond, you know, taking people out to dinner, but they were, you know, suitcase cases full of cash. Um, but again, not to suggest there's any inconsistency. I actually think the position you staked out makes a great deal of sense in terms of distinguishing the cases. I merely meant to highlight there is this tension that exists when a certain practice is widespread and one actor, you know, gets caught. In what sense is it fair to drop the hammer on them? when there are plausible arguments that they're not the only ones who do it. And when do you have to say, like, it may be that other people have done it, but you did it and you have to pay the consequences for having done it. And you can't just say, well, you know, don't blame me. Don't blame the rotten system I was part of. Um, You know, that I think you could apply that to individual football players taking dives as well. Hey, like, don't why should I be particularly penalized when people are doing this left and right? So I think it's, I think that actually, uh, that you, you've, you've sold me on the idea that whether or not one cares about sports generally or, or English football, some of the structural problems that we face in thinking about integrity issues in, in the sporting world uh, have interesting analogs to how we think about integrity issues more generally. So thank you for sharing that, uh, that set of insights with me and with all of our listeners.
I should say, Matthew, if any of the listeners feel that I've been fundamentally unfair, irrational or illogical, I'm, I'm very happy to hear all viewpoints on this. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't claim to have a monopoly of knowledge on the sporting truth, uh, although my wife might think differently. But, um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I welcome all comments from anyone who listens. Many of our, our listeners, as like many of the readers of my blog, are not shy about letting you know when they think you've gotten something badly wrong. So, uh, so this is an invitation to all of you out there. Please, please weigh in and keep this fascinating conversation going. Um, so and thank you, everyone, for listening to this most recent episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. My guest today has been Dan Huff, head of the politics department at the University of Sussex. Dan, thank you again for appearing on the show. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Dan's work at the Sussex Center for the Study of Corruption, make sure to check out the show notes. If you are interested in the topic in general, go back and listen to our interview with TI co-founder Michael Hirschman, in which we also talk about corruption in the sports sector and cover the FIFA corruption scandal that Dan mentions in the interview. Finally, a quick reminder to vote for your favorite anti-corruption podcast in the award handed out by SIPE. You can find the link in the show notes. It really only takes a minute and helps us a lot. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kubis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week.